0: Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 134 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and we put the Christmas tree up yesterday. It is so cheering. I don't know why I didn't put it up in, I don't know, March. Oh, what did you put on top of it? At the moment it's got a wooden owl.
1: (laughs) That is our tree topper. Festive. Very festive. Mm. We couldn't find a tree topper. They're like hen's teeth. I put some decorations up because I haven't been bothering in recent years when it's just been me in the house. But then I thought, well, hang on, if I applied that logic, I wouldn't have hoovered since March. So <laughs> I have put some up and I'll put some more up tomorrow. Hannah, have you hoovered since March? I have hoovered since March, yeah. Okay. I'm not going to tell you how many times I've hoovered since March. It's, it's, it's not a lot, to be honest. <laughs> <guys>. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'd like to talk about eating in dungarees. Okay, I'm an old hand with the dungarees and the eating, so how can I help? Well, you know I'm a big spiller. Mate, you once got four bibs on the same birthday, yes. And ordinarily, you know when you eat something like like a croissant or popcorn, something that sticks to your front? (laughs) Well, with dungarees, it goes down the front, doesn't it? I, I didn't know this until now. And then for the rest of the day, you're wandering around like you're in the Great Escape with like, Bits of croissant <laughs> and popcorn just dropping out of the leg of your trousers. I thought you were going to say it was going
2: into the pocket. On the no, it's the just dungarees. going
1: between. It's going between my top and the dungarees, and then I just think... releasing itself over the course of the day. So if I do over twenty minutes later, there's a bit of crusty bread on the floor. Where's it I come think you from? Should, you should check that pocket as well, mate. You never know what might be hiding <laughs> in there. Yeah. Uh, also,
0: wear one of those bibs that you got for your birthday. <laughs> No.
2: And I'm Jen Offord, and yesterday I painted my nails for the first time in six months. What colours did you
0: go for? Red. Fire Engine Red.
2: I think it's actually called Spice It Up. So I was expecting it to be a bit more orange, but it's not. It's It's an interesting story for you all. It's very nice. It's very nice. I also wore a cardigan that cost more than £4 because I didn't have the baby with me, so I felt fairly confident that
1: no one was going to be sick on it. Do you know what that story teaches me, Jen? is that we're not spending enough time in each other's company
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh
2: that's cute it's kind
0: of awful but
2: cute (laughs) soon hannah soon you'll be able to be sick on me
0: (laughs) later on i get some tips on how to stay hopeful for the future and taking care of our mental health from bona fide
1: entertainment legend ruby wax Lucy Nicholl talks to positive psychology coach Ruth Cooper-Dixon about her work coaching and supporting volunteers who are working with refugees and how to handle our own expectations regarding post-traumatic growth in the pandemic. In Jenny Off the Blocks,
2: the crowd goes wild as fans finally return to sport.
1: And in Rated or Dated, we clutch our faces and scream, how is home alone 30?
0: So old. But first, high street woes, emotional fish, and the worst mouth-to-mouth. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Stink. Bush
1: Bush. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we'd like to know what Boris Johnson has against hand-washing. It's part of his motto, isn't it? Hands, face, space, touch your knees. But did you watch The
0: Vaccine? It sounds like a Dunleavy just disaster.
1: 2020's The Vaccine. Did you watch The Vaccine press conference? I did not watch The Vaccine press conference. Okay, so in it, Jonathan Van Tam was asked a question about, you know, life going back to normal. And he said, ah, oh, you know, I think that, some of the things that we've learned in this might just be good to just carry on within ordinary life, like washing your hands more and sterilizing stuff more, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to say. Perfectly common. And then Boris Johnson says, well, like, <laughs> it goes a bit. And I think initially what Boris Johnson is trying to get across to his people is that that means we're not going to have to wear a mask forever. So then they go back to JVT and JVT says, well, you know, like I say, I do think it's actually a good idea for people to keep up a lot of the hygiene stuff. Then Boris Johnson again says, well, yeah, people are just thought you've been telling us to wash our hands for like nine months. It might be the only positive thing to come out of this is that people get less colds because they wash their fucking hands more and do the vampire cough. But no. Anyway, so let's take a stroll down the great British high street. And by that, I absolutely mean a metaphorical one, which I think makes me part of the problem. (laughs) Clothing retailers have not had it especially easy for the past few decades, let alone the last year. I mean, I'm guessing you all know this, but just to reiterate, the internet has put them in competition with companies who aren't also paying overblown rents for square footage in high footfall areas. We had a credit crunch. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Austerity has bitten and cultural mores have changed regarding fast fashion. And while none of these factors seem capable of delivering a killer blow to big name high street chains, piss poor management certainly will. Oh, yeah. And if you're interested, you can find several comprehensive pieces about the disastrous management decisions which brought us here on that Internet follow that up with a global pandemic which has kept stores shut and many people out of them even when they opened again and you'll see the kind of news we did last week about Topshop, Burton's, Dorothy Perkins and Evans all part of Philip Green's Arcadia Group and also Debenhams which has been flipping around on the bank like a dying fish for several years now but has finally gasped its last. Unless a bid to buy it by Sports Direct's Mike Ashley works out which is rather like coming to being given mouth-to-mouth by, well, Sports Direct's Mike Ashley. (laughs) That's the same company, in case you were wondering, that a report by MPs for a Business Innovation and Skills Committee said in 2016, quote, didn't treat its staff like humans. And saw complaints in lockdown one that it was forcing staff to work despite having furloughed them. Bastards. All this follows news that 158,000 jobs in UK retail have already been lost this year, not including jobs that may go at Arcadia and Debenhams. Plus, other retailers, including Ted Baker, have made recent announcements about the state of their businesses and not good ones. So, sad times on the high street. Will you miss any of those shops, Mick?
0: I won't miss any of those that you have specifically mentioned. It is a long time since I shopped in Topshop. One, for age reasons, and two, for fast fashion reasons. But it's horrific news for all those people who are going to lose their jobs. Obviously, I couldn't give two flying shits about Philip Green, apart from the fact he won't be massively damaged by this. It is all those people who are going to lose those jobs.
1: Probably the loss that is worth mourning out of all of those would be Evans. Because there aren't a huge amount of places that people over the size of about 18 or 20 can actually buy clothes on the high street so I think for people with big bums and big tits and I say that as someone with a big bum and big tits maybe that loss will be felt slightly more
0: including in that people aren't over a size 18 but who have slightly bigger calves than a twig and would like to get into some knee-high boots yes exactly that
1: so, thank goodness we've not got another potential economic clusterfuck on the horizon. Anyway, Mick, what are you chatting about this <laughs> Oh,
0: God. <laughs> yeah, uh, join me in taking a few very deep breaths as we ask, what is Brexit and why is it still happening? Yeah, I know the desire to start sobbing and screaming is overwhelming, but British, steal yourself, people. We're going in. Huh. Quick summary, in June 2016, a majority of the British people voted to leave the EU, 52% to 48%. It wasn't a legally binding result, but then Prime Minister Theresa May, who replaced referendum holder David Cameron after he swiftly scarpered to Nice to put his trotters up, twat, twat. ticked the box to make it so and curry favour with the hardcore Brexiteers in the Tory party and indeed across the country. How'd that work out for her? Well, uh, Boris Johnson, after he replaced May, managed to forge a withdrawal agreement with the EU for a formal political exit on the 31st of January 2020, with London and Brussels agreeing an 11 month transition period from the end of January 2020 to when the bells chime on December the 31st. During that transition period, the UK has followed all the same EU rules as before, including single market and customs unions arrangements. But you might well be thinking, isn't it December, uh, now? (laughs) And while I understand the question mark there, because 2020 has messed with time and our heads, you would be right. It is indeed December. And no, there is no all singing, all dancing free trade deal with the EU as promised by our Prime Minister. Tick tock, tick tock, eh? What happens with borders remains, and excuse me for slipping into the technical jargon here, but a bit fucked. I can't even think about the sheer incompetence around how to move forward in Northern Ireland without melting into incomprehensible fury. So let's instead look at Kent. Ah, Kent, which looks set to be renamed the Toilet of England. Yep, the county formerly known as the Garden of England could smell much less fragrant, thanks to thousands of lorry drivers potentially being held up for hours by post-Brexit border checks and caught short having to shit in a bag and fling it into the wild don't at me it's already happening
1: it really is I spoke to my uncle who lives in Kent who's in tier three and he said I'm not quite sure why we're in tier three and I said it's because all those turtles that have (laughs) been flung out of windows mate
0: yeah exactly and personally I think Kent should go with it visit Kent flush with Tory success but the residents Uh, don't seem keen Perhaps they shouldn't have overwhelmingly voted to leave the EU back in 2016 then. But to be fair, other than the countless experts who predicted these results, who could have predicted these results? Who could have known, Mick? No one could have known. It's a mystery. But why is there no deal yet? Well, the two sides are still deadlocked over three main sticking points. Quotas for fishing fleets, rules on amount of financial aid the state can provide for businesses, and a mechanism by which any future trading disagreements can be resolved. That last one's a kicker, isn't it? It's basically, we can't agree on what to do if what we can't agree on what to do now happens again in the future, bodes well. Just to finish up, if you like me were wondering why there's so much banging on about fishing, which makes up a tiny part of the economy on both sides of the channel, we're talking 1% of the British economy. While the Good Friday Agreement hangs in the balance, It turns out that fishing has always been an emotional issue when it comes to the UK Mm -hmm. and the EU and as with many emotional issues, it is complicated. To put it incredibly, incredibly simply, UK waters have got loads of really good fish, like we win at fish. At the moment, Mm -hmm. that's all shared as per the EU agreements, which means that currently more than 60% of the tonnage of fish landed from British waters is caught by foreign boats. But post-Brexit the UK fishing industry wants more of that sweet, sweet fishy goodness to land in British nets. And now for the complicated bit. Most of the fish landed by UK fishers is exported with three quarters of it going to EU countries. While most of the fish eaten in the UK is imported following. So yeah, so new taxes and tariffs are really going to leave that. And here's the technical jargon again, a bit fucked still. Three weeks to sort it all out. Who's feeling lucky? Mother of God.
1: (laughs) Anybody want a burst of good news? And as the only person here, Mickey, can you speak for the entire world and say yes? Yes, I can. Privileged to do so. Well, here goes. Indigenous Amazon leader Namonte Nenquimo has won an international award, nicknamed the Green Nobel, for her grassroots environmental activism to save Ecuador's rainforests. Nenquimo was given one of six Goldman prizes after she led an indigenous campaign and legal action, which resulted in a court ruling protecting 500,000 acres of Warani territory in the Amazon rainforest from oil companies. The 33-year-old's success also set a legal precedent for indigenous rights in Ecuador, meaning other tribes are following in her footsteps to protect additional tracts of rainforest from oil extraction. John Goldman president of the Goldman Environmental Foundation, said the winners had been rewarded for, quote, taking a stand, risking their lives and livelihoods and inspiring us with real, lasting environmental progress. These six environmental champions reflect the powerful impact that one person can have on many.
0: That is genuinely good news. Isn't it just? More news next week.
1: Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they?
0: sexism of the week it's that time of the week where we exclaim mary mother of for fuck's sake how is it possible for that to be even more shit for women still where there's an ill-thought-out Tory policy there's a way Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you may remember we talked about the controversial two-child limit restricting the amount that larger families can receive in social security benefits when it came in back in 2017 and we talked about it with regards to its non-consensual sex exemption or rape clause which means women whose third or subsequent child was conceived through sexual assault can gain exemption from the two-child limit. I won't retread old ground too much here, but apparently it doesn't go without saying to the party in power that obliging traumatised women to have to explain the circumstances of a rape as part of a benefits claim is fecking outrageous. Scottish National Party MP Alison Thulis, who first identified the rape clause, did sterling work campaigning at the time, And this July spoke out again about scrapping the two child limit when data revealed that 900 women have been forced to go through the process of claiming for an exception due to that rape clause. As Thulis says, every single one of these women has been put in a position where they've had to fill in a form to prove their child was conceived as a result of rape or coercion just to make ends meet. Has it been scrapped? No it has not been scrapped and a new horror has emerged in the pandemic with the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, BPAS, discovering that the combination of economic and job insecurity triggered by Covid and the two-child limit effectively removed some women's choice persuading them to end a pregnancy that they would in a less fraught financial situation have wanted to keep. BPAS said that more than half of the 240 women it surveyed who had an abortion during the pandemic and who were aware of the two child limit and likely to be affected by it said the policy was, quote, important in their decision making around whether or not to continue the pregnancy. Catherine O'Brien, BPAS Associate Director of Campaigns, said if the government does not want to see more women feeling forced into a corner between financial hardship or ending an otherwise wanted pregnancy, they must revoke the two child limit as a matter of urgency.
1: Yeah, agreed. agreed. And I say that as a woman who has no children and has never been entitled to this money. I don't resent other women for getting it.
0: Absolutely not. If
1: they're prepared to raise the children <laughs> that I cannot be asked to raise, then why not give them the money they need to do it?
0: Hello. I just noticed you going in your bag for something and could hear the jingle jangle of some change. Now then, if that change isn't being used for a, a cup of tea or coffee or to do a worthy cause, you could consider giving it to us. And you can do that by popping over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash standard issue and any bunts you would like to throw our way is very gratefully received and helps us keep making content that champions women thanks very much i am joined on the phone by tv star comedian author activist mental health advocate and well pretty much a legend ruby wax ruby hello
3: hi i love my intro
0: (laughs) you could just keep going but thank you (laughs) i could just keep going
3: how are you Well, I'm I'm harassed now because I was in Scotland in an eco-community where life was really about picking vegetables and uh, going swimming in the North Sea. And now I'm in London and uh, I'm overwhelmed again with the frazzledness of the whole thing.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned that word frazzled, although obviously I wish you weren't feeling it. But your Frazzled Cafes, which are communities where people can get peer-to-peer support to help them cope with modern life's frenetic pace... Have they still been running online?
3: Yeah, they're online. I do three a week at 5.30. They're free. By going on FrazzleCafe.org, I'm doing one at 5.30. And I have about maybe sometimes 80 to 100 people. The rules are nobody talks about the news. I uh, top and tail it with mindfulness just to get everybody defrazzled. And then people start to, you know, they get it. They speak from the heart. There's no fussing around. They're authentic. They're interesting everybody whatever color whatever age they nod whenever somebody speaks they go yeah (laughs) me too and people really feel like some people say you know nobody ever cared about me i didn't feel i was heard and now i'm heard and i wish the world was like this and then in the day if you want to join a frazzle there's hosts who smaller groups so you can get on any time but i do tuesday wednesday thursday and do you find them helpful Oh yeah, I mean, I would really be bereft if I didn't have them because I always wanted community. That's my dream, and mm-hmm. now it turns out that uh, for the future, we're going to have to find community because this isolation is killing us. Yeah, I think, and it always has. We're it's not the first time we've been alone, and so I, you know, I wrote a book. My latest book is, and now for the good news, to the future with love, and every single. Uh, area that I researched from business to tech to education to community to health. The real prototype now is people working together. It's teamwork. It's not dog eat dog anymore because that really was burning people out. And so I'm, you know, I'm trying to walk the talk you know I'm not a politician but what I did was create this world on zoom where people hear each other it's like a town
0: hall meeting you say you're not a politician but you are an activist and your fifth book which as you've just said it's called and now for the good news to the future with love came out in September and it is a it's a pay into optimism backed up with research you've done into various projects across the world that promise a better life for us and the planet Now, you wrote it before the advent of COVID, but if anything, I feel like the pandemic has made it feel even more timely because we've never needed optimism more, really.
3: Yeah, I mean, what a coincidence that I wrote that book. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it's it's just your fault. We we were getting, so. I know, uh, you couldn't get a better title, but (laughs) luckily I didn't write it. Once lockdown started, I was done. But for two years, I decided I would take my eyes off the... um, Disaster that was everybody loved talking about and watching on the news. And I thought, let's shift your focus, Ruby. So I went around kind of the globe or whatever. And I went and I worked in companies where if people put purpose in front of profit, and these aren't small little companies, don't think they don't make a profit. But it's a pleasure to be there. They're ethical. Um, And this is the way the world is going to shift. I went to um, educate to schools in the UK where. These are in disadvantaged neighborhoods, so don't give me, it costs a lot of money, where the kids are taught empathy and they're taught how to listen to each other because those are going to be the gold standards when they grow up everything else will be robot
0: yeah i think the education chapter was my favorite oh, it's just good. wonderful yeah
3: those kids are going to be you know that they're they're going to be the gold standard instead of cramming them full of information and regurgitating subjects that they won't need in 20 years mm-hmm. these kids are learning you know the teacher says there's no such thing as a stupid question imagine if i got that <laughs> because <laughs> those are the kids that think out of the box but don't think they don't get the grades they do Because they learn how to um, control their stress, they give them tools, and that's more than we ever got. You know, this is why we burned out. Maybe they won't.
0: Yeah, I love your idea of putting good news on the front of newspapers slash the internet, however people get their news fix.
3: Well, bad news sells, you know. So we can't. It's and again, it's not our condition; it's a human condition. Because we get an adrenaline hit when we get bad news, or when you're, you know, getting a drug or you're getting more texts or people are liking you and the thing is we don't know where our limit is and so it's bad for us you know we, we're making our own cocktails this kind of cortisol again and dopamine and nobody ever gets addicted to good things I mean nobody ever gets addicted to kale <laughs> <laughs> there's reasons for that <laughs> yeah there's reasons for it but you, we have a proclivity to and I write about it in, some, in my book is we out of five thoughts this is general, for a negative. And there's a reason that we're, uh, somebody also said that we're Velcro for uh, negative thoughts and Teflon for positive ones. So we really have to manage our minds. If if we're not aware, we really can drag down that system and then feel so horrible and think, oh, I'm not good enough. You know, so, uh, so part of it is, you know, I'm looking at, I used to, you know, I studied mindfulness, but if it isn't for you, then go look at what people are doing that's really changing the world. That makes you feel better, you know, and they're compassionate. And that's also a virus. You know, it's catching when you see people doing their jobs and they're doing it for the environment and they're doing it for a passion. It feels good. And then they work harder. How
0: do we get better at seeing the good rather than joining in the collective rage? And I ask that as someone whose screaming pillow is in pretty much constant use. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> you know, um, you have to you. It's not going to come. And if the newspaper isn't going to show you somebody who's not dead on the front cover. <laughs> uh, yeah. But don't wait for and don't wait for, you know, don't wait for a politician to change things. I think we really have to take over and evolve ourselves. So, I mean, do whatever you can. Form a community. Community will save everybody because that makes you uh, buy that bonding chemical. You know, that oxytocin is really good for your health. You can look at my book and see what's going on in tech. It's not there to wipe us out. There are, you know, there are people who, you know, and there are now who just want your money. But there's also people working for the good of humanity in tech, in business, in designing communities, in the health. uh, It's not all um, doom and gloom so you can read my book that'll make you feel better. It did make
0: me feel better. I have read it. It did make me feel better. Yeah. And you I mean you kick it off by stating that we're in the best position that the world has ever been in. And it's so easy to
3: forget that. Yeah, it is easy to forget it, but on the other hand, you can't say, well, it's not the Spanish Inquisition. This is pretty scary what what's going on now and yeah. in the past we needed stress. Now we're frazzled, which is um that that inner monologue you get oh I'm not good enough nobody else is stressed so it's like our thoughts are sabotaging us this is a new phenomenon but um, we have to really work at it to not get distracted because the culture is so um, demanding yeah I mean before you were just either a peasant or a king
0: there are loads of bits Mm. of the book that filled me with hope and I particularly like the ideas that if our minds are in chaos we create chaos And that means that to think clearly is social action. Do you think it's easier to look outwards rather than inwards?
3: That's a tricky question. We do both, both, but I mean, you know, Socrates or they say he didn't say it, but to know thyself means that you're um, pretty much getting to be the driver rather than the driven. We can't just go for distraction. I mean, you can, but it'll end in tears. And we live in a world, I, I always say, somebody says, not me, that we live <laughs> around weapons of mass distraction. And I think for me, because I study mindfulness, to understand what the habits are of your thinking and facing them and then being kind to yourself, because we all have crap recordings going on in our heads, uh, is the way to cool down your fear. I think you have to know how you're thinking so you don't project it on other people and then get angry at them for making you feel bad. So there is awareness, and it's always been that way. That's the road to, um, you know, a better life, I think. Unless you're lucky. Unless you're lucky. You know, some people are just resilient. But if you feel that you're getting frazzled, you have to do something about it. It's not going to go away by wishful thinking.
0: I mean you you were kind of like the poster woman for that it's well documented that your depression 15 years ago led to you getting a master's degree in mindfulness based cognitive therapy at Oxford which you've mentioned and rightly so it's fair to say that that completely changed your outlook and your life didn't it
3: well it has to you know, if you go to the gym every day you're going to get a six pack so the fact that well I liked studying it because I always need to know the I need to know the, the 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 reality of it. I don't I don't go for wishful thinking. I like to see what happens in a brain scanner when you do do mindfulness, mm-hmm. and it has fantastic results. But so does praying. You know, I mean, it's just that there's not a lot of churches open, and I'm not religious. But um, <laughs> it did change it. I not I haven't had a serious depression, but not because it's a miracle. Uh, it's because I can can sense when it's coming. Mm -hmm. And I could never do that before. You're suddenly hit on the side of the head and taken. You're hijacked by this devil. And the next thing is you're depressed. And now if I see it coming, I can do things about it. So it delivered.
0: Do you think the mindfulness that keeps you sane and grounded now, having that toolkit that you've developed, would have been possible at the height of your fame?
3: No, I wouldn't have even thought of it. I don't think kids, you know, really would think about this. At a certain point, you know, I was really good about um, being, you know, pushy and doing a thousand things at once. Mm -hmm. I think you have the juice to do that at a certain age, and then you still think, oh, I've still got that petrol in my tank, and then you burn out. So I think it's at an appropriate time, even though they're teaching kids in schools now, because I would have been probably able to control it and still be ambitious I mean being mindful doesn't mean you're a, you're vegging out it just means that you're able to detect when you're hitting your tipping point point. and I think I would have been a better comedian if I had done this because it, you're not desperate and you can focus Yeah
0: I remember so I'm 43 and I remember at senior school but when I was like 12 or 13 one of our RE teachers because it was a Catholic school she used to do a little bit of meditation at the end of every class she gave us where we'd kind of listen to her and put our heads on the desk and she'd do the whole think of an island that kind of thing and she was derided not just by the kids but by other teachers for being a bit kooky and now it feels like it's something that we desperately need to make sure is part of everyone's daily life to take that little bit of time
3: to sit with ourselves? Well it is an emergency now because you know think about how many people commit suicide think about the numbers of people having to leave work and mindfulness it didn't get popular because you know suddenly it became bogue. it became popular because you can see on a brain scanner what happens and it's not for everybody but it's pretty impressive did it take you a while to get into
0: it as someone who was and obviously I, I only know this from what you were like on tv but seemed quite frenetic
3: yeah i can still be frenetic mindfulness doesn't chill you out it just means i'm frenetic when people pay for it or <laughs> yeah. you know if i'm really in the but i'm not frenetic because you know i've got something to prove you might call it frenetic i call it when you're really happy you know and uh, but frenetic is when you're desperate and you're, you know, you're high, and it's not fun. I think it's helped with that. Uh, you know, I had a, I had a kind of thing to, um to make people like me, and I don't really, I don't have that so much. That's a relief. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, totally.
3: I think that comes
0: as you get older as well, particularly for women, because we're very much taught to be people pleasers.
3: Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I mean. Some people don't change. They try to imitate who they used to be when they were young, and then it's a tragedy. Yeah, yeah, and it's hard. I think.
0: Yeah, I, no, I, agree. I totally do. But yeah. you
3: better reinvent because nothing's sadder than somebody pretending they're still, you know, in their prime when they're not. You can get more. Somebody said you can either turn into wine or vinegar in <laughs> <laughs> a certain age.
0: Oh, I said that was good That is great, I like that one I just want to touch one more time on the mental health theme because you have become this incredible advocate for being honest about the problems that so many of us face I've, I've suffered from pretty bad depression a lot over my life and Christmas is a time that a lot of people find tricky at the oh, best man, of times yeah. let alone like this year I just wondered if you had any sort of tips that you could share for how people might get through what could be a tough potentially lonely period
3: well, again, you can come on Travel Cafe because uh-huh. we'll be there. We'll be there and you'll be with people that care about you and you don't have to tell them what you do for a living. And they, you know, I think that if lockdown eases off, rather yeah. than when, you know, if you live in a town or something, get together and and organize, picking up the garbage or knocking on windows. I mean, I think if you're kind, it's really good for your health. So yeah. I think... Um, if you can't think of anything else to do and you're not disabled, then do something charitable. And that's real. that'll give you a kick. That's better than any uh, present or any buzz.
0: I don't know if you've seen this around you, and obviously you do your own communities, but that has been a real silver lining in what's been happening over the last year. There's been quite a lot of community action. It's been a joy to see
3: and be involved with. I know. Yeah. I know. It's fantastic. So, you know, if you say what to do over Christmas, then do that. In
0: and now for the good news, you journey through various different things like you mentioned before, business, education, tech. Was there a particular sector that made you most excited and most optimistic about the future?
3: Well, I love the communities and there is one in South London. It's the Peabody Estate, some of it's free housing and they do. It's in the middle of South London. There's a community centre where women with kids take care of each other's kids. Elderly people have, you know, things to do. They have vegetables growing on their roofs, and they have no heating bills. Because if you build those houses correctly, uh, you can really, your are helping the environment. Mm-hmm. And they all have each other's backs. It can be done. I mean, I stayed in a eco-community last week, and they're in cities, too. You know, uh, the exciting thing is what happens when people... Ha- are united in some way. And working for Patagonia was exciting. That's a sportswear company because they all have missions. And there's an organization called B Corps where you get a certificate if your company is fair, if there's authenticity, if there's equality, if um, you know they do things for the environment. And that's become the cool thing to get now because this, millennials are going to be able to smell rats pretty soon you know if uh, you're polluting the Chinese sea with your blue jeans. You know, with the die pouring out, yeah. they'll be able to tell. Oh, this is interesting. The future is going to be, they're not, you're not going to get away with it anymore just because of technology. And I, there were things in tech that were working for humanity, teaching kids empathy, games that make kids more aware of how other people feel, but still exciting. And at the end, when I went to Samos with a group of girls, of uh, people that, are hands-on you know they they build the sewers they build the showers you know they they have a women's center when when i went there with them and i saw those refugees up close boy that changed my life i'll tell you that if you have depression you whip right out of it (laughs) yeah
0: Yeah. perspective i guess we it's it's so easy to lose but so important to have Just one last question. We are chatting on my mum, Anne's birthday, and she's a mega Ruby Wax fan, and she was so excited that I was going to talk to you. So, for my final question, I asked it to come from her, and uh, brace yourself, it's fairly broad. She would like to know what is your most favorite thing you have ever done, ever? And she has specified absolutely no boundaries here.
3: Oh my God. (laughs) Going to Burning Man. Ah. Yeah. I was the oldest person there, but it was a kick. So tell her that. Tell her to get ready.
0: (laughs) I will do. And Now for the Good News is published by Penguin Life, out now and available from all good bookshops. And it really is inspiring. And even now, during everything that's going on, we'll put a smile on your face and a bit of hope in your heart. Ruby, thank you so much for chatting with me.
3: Thank you. I really appreciate it. You make me feel better. (laughs)
4: Hi there, I'm Lucy Nicol. I'm going to be chatting today to a pretty amazing woman who also happens to be a colleague and friend, the fabulous Ruth Cooper-Dixon. Now, I first met Ruth at the My Media Awards in London a few years ago, and fortunately, I've since had the opportunity to work with her and her positive psychology business, Shamps. I say fortunately because, quite simply, Ruth never ceases to amaze me. She is literally a one-woman powerhouse who works as a qualified coach, runs a positive psychology business, an online mental wealth training course, a community interest company, and on top of all that, she's currently working on a PhD. But not only that, there's more. Through Ruth's community interest company, which is Shams for Change, she's also taking part in voluntary work, most recently flying over to Samos in Greece to work with volunteers on a refugee camp through the brilliant charity indigo volunteers so ruth hello welcome hello
5: what a lovely intro
4: (laughs) it's all true (laughs) so to get straight into it because it's you've not long been back from greece tell us a little bit about indigo volunteers and what they do
5: INDIGO volunteers uh, connect independent volunteers with grassroots partner charities working alongside the European refugee route and it's thanks to this vital assistance INDIGO enables organisations on the ground to deliver that much needed general um, support and medical care aid and psychosocial support to refugees and asylum seekers so they're a fantastic organisation and I came across them earlier on this year during lockdown when they were asking for people who have an experience in psychosocial support to provide either a workshop or or some one-to-one support for the volunteers so it's actually working with the volunteers themselves not the those individuals from the refugee community but all the volunteers are either working in or around the camps um as i said across across europe When we thought we were sort of coming out of lockdown a little bit over the summer in the UK, there was a plan then for me to go out to Greece itself to deliver these in the community centres. But just as that happened and everything was booked, then that is when we started to see a high rise of COVID cases in the camps, especially, as I said, in Samos, where there is a a camp there which is for 4,000 refugees.
4: So when you're talking about working with the volunteers um, on the camp, what kinds of challenges did you find that were facing particularly on this trip
5: it was kind of in essence two two sides to it because there was so indigo facilitated You know, me getting in touch with the NGOs, they promoted the session. So it was kind of in facilitation with them. But it was very much me on the ground on my own, delivering um, a series of workshops. So over 10 working days, I delivered 20 workshops. I delivered nine one-to-one coaching sessions with the volunteers. There was a lot of frustration because of the lockdown regulations within the camp, which was making it very difficult for those who were in the camp to get access to support um, the right medical care but also the fact that they weren't able to get out and be part of the usual activities in the community centers that they have so that that was very frustrating there's obviously volunteers who've come out i guess in essence a bit like myself who've come out to do a job and then realized because of covid 19 that that that's on hold so you know the community centers were shut the laundry was shut um, so, for example, the the laundry centre in Samos, run by Samos volunteers, there's six washing machines there for 4,000 refugees. Gosh. Um, and they weren't able to access those for the period of time they'd just opened that whilst I was out there. So there's lots of frustration for those volunteers who are out in Lesbos, the Greek island, where the Moira camp burnt down, and there's Moira camp version 2.0, if you like. We saw heavy storms start to happen in October when I was out there, which meant there was a lot of uh, volunteers who were frontline, digging out tents in the mud and the rain, and these individuals who literally have nothing but that you know everything is being swept away so there's these challenges around that support as well challenges of not being able for example to do emergency response work in terms of the boats and the uh, individuals who are traveling migrants that are traveling over so the the feelings really mixed because there's a real sense about why you do this why you choose to do this work and why you give your time and effort and energy and love and care to do this work. So I think that was very hard for them to kind of reconcile and, and, you know, there's always this sense of you can never do enough. But then there was a real flip side to that where actually because of the lockdown regulations it has meant that some of the volunteers have had a chance to pause and reflect and to deal with situations that they've kind of experienced throughout this year there's been an opportunity to look at what they're doing in terms of their fundraising and the services that they provide and you know have a bit more heads down approach when it has been a bit quieter because they're not seeing the refugees face to face day in day out and those from those communities so they've had perhaps a bit more time to catch up on those uh tasks and activities you you never get a chance to do so there is that sense that there's been a bit more headspace for that mm. um, and and that was really what the workshops were about as well it was about reflecting on meaning and purpose sort of that very much that existential you know life view as to why you're doing the your work your degree what you're gaining from it, what you're going to take further on in the world. And I think that gave them a bit of time uh, for them to do that in a sense of, you know, po- boosting their positive mental wealth as well. And
4: I think when, when we think about refugee camps, we can imagine all of the traumas that refugees themselves may face. But what kinds of traumatic experiences might a volunteer experience? So
5: we talk about sort of compassion fatigue which is an element of a secondary trauma so you don't have to deal with it you're not going through it but you're you're supporting those who are going through it which anyone who's working frontline is going to be experiencing secondary trauma and you see it day in day out and it doesn't mean you harden yourself to it but you are dealing with that and also coupled with burnout it's a it's a real factor and the research shows that volunteers, especially within a refugee community setting, do experience high levels of compassion fatigue. There is all different sorts of ways that trauma can play out because trauma is such a it's is such an emotive word of course, but it means very different things to different people. I remember one day we were cycling back from from being out and about, it was the weekend and there was somebody just sat on the side of the road who was really upset and uh one of the volunteers i was with actually stopped and had a a long conversation with this individual we carried on and they and it's you know it's just being there for those people and hearing those stories and even for me i'm hearing it almost third hand past the volunteers but also holding space for how they're feeling so I definitely felt impacted by the end of the three weeks, for sure.
4: I think there's there's been a lot of talk about post-traumatic growth, um, which mm. is something that you're quite the expert in. And I think especially, you know, um, people on refugee camps are going through, you know, obviously it can be huge, can be traumatic. I, I suppose it would be quite difficult for me to imagine having never been in that situation. But then on another level it's 2020 with the pandemic, lots of us are experiencing trauma in very different ways. There are people who have lost loved ones, people who have been um, very fearful of contracting coronavirus. So this whole post-traumatic growth concept has been talked about quite a lot. Could you tell us in your expert view... What it really is, and what some of the problems are with how we're talking about it.
5: Post traumatic growth has been researched for decades and it, it's really come into its own, especially during the pandemic, as you said. And people have latched onto it, which I feel is great because it's great to see that there's more and under- slightly more understanding about it. But also, the concern is for me. That it does link into toxic positivity in a sense of you're going through trauma, but don't worry, you're gonna come out of this so much stronger and better. And and, and and it's when it's worded in that way which takes away from somebody their truth, their their experience, their journey of pain and suffering. And post traumatic growth is a type of adverse adversarial growth but what happens is you experience trauma and it can either be an outcome or it can be a process this is what people often don't understand so post-traumatic growth can be an outcome so you work through it or it can be part of the actual process itself and when we experience post-traumatic growth we've gone through trauma and we are then shaped by that in some way so we either have a stronger sense of self we have a greater meaning and purpose for life we connect with people on a on a much deeper level we have um, a better appreciation for life itself so there's there's kind of different factors that, that come with post-traumatic growth but trauma is so unique and trauma can be anything from I've had a relationship breakup. Or I've lost my job to, as you said, losing someone in COVID to I'm in a, I've had to flee my own country and move to somewhere else. Right, Trauma is so unique. It's it's not just one size fits all. And actually post-traumatic growth, it can take years for somebody to even get to that point so it's not like you go through a trauma and then oh in 6 months time or a year's time I'm going to feel amazing and i'm and this is the other concept about post traumatic growth it doesn't it, it doesn't leave you feeling glad that the trauma's happened to you you, you you're not happy that it's happened to you Yeah, i think there's this misconception that i'm so glad this happened to me and you're really positive about it it doesn't mean as well post-traumatic growth doesn't mean that you're happy every single day this is often a misconception post-traumatic growth is part of the concept of resilience and resilience again doesn't mean that you're happy and positive every single day so I think it's really it's been grabbed by mainstream media without really necessarily understanding it and actually even by doctors or by um, um, clinicians who haven't necessarily got an understanding of it
4: yeah and you mentioned toxic positivity and I I suppose you know we we've discussed this quite a lot during Covid there's been all of this you know have you learned a new skill have you baked banana loaf have you started a sourdough starter all of this stuff and actually yes people have had some time but but if you've lost your job that could be quite a traumatic thing and you may not feel at all like baking banana loaf so it's about managing expectations of recovery as well isn't it
5: yeah definitely there's no right or wrong way to experience what we're going through and people generally will fall into three areas they'll either bounce back and they're you know there might be some of those people you said there are well I'm going to do these skills and I've got this time and that's their attitude and outlook and that's great and that's you know that's okay and then there's people who have probably been very stoic you know they've been very kind of um I, I'm just going to stand here and, and power through and that's me and I'm not going to change and, and some people are like that and that's also okay and then you've got people that will have you know, their whole world, basically, trauma comes from shattered assumptions, you know, shattered assumptions about our lives, the world we know, which has happened to lots of people on some level. So that will shift and change people. And again, not everyone will grow from that.
4: So just finally, have you got any tips for people who either are supporting someone who's been through something traumatic or who themselves has been through something traumatic in terms of managing expectations
5: firstly that individual can change day in day out week in week out you know just give them space to feel the emotions make sure if you're supporting somebody just be there for them and you don't even have to keep asking are you okay because if they're not okay that question's a bit mute really so just checking in with them what they've been up to tell me about your day to day giving them a little bit of space holding that space I cannot I cannot emphasise if you can just sit with somebody whether that's online whether that's having a phone call whether that's socially distancing in person whatever that looks like for you if somebody does need professional support you can't force somebody to get that support encourage them encourage them to contact their GP have a conversation reach out to the right charities reach out to um, anyone can self-refer for talking therapy on the nhs we know services are stretched but if you don't put yourself out there if you don't ask for help then um you know that won't come to you unfortunately so just keep encouraging them you can't be all things to all people and it may need a few people to be that support network not just you
4: absolutely that's that's really helpful thank you so much um hopefully people will get a, a lot out of that so some really great words of wisdom there ruth thank you
5: thank you for having me
4: and um if anybody wants to follow ruth on social you can find her on twitter at ruthie coops and um, that's r-u-t-h-i-e-c-o-o-p-s um on instagram it's ruth.cooperdixon and Um, And if you want to take part in Ruth's online coaching course, My Mental Wealth, just visit www.mymentalwealth.com.
3: You play ball like a girl!
2: Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where the crowd goes wild as we discuss all things women's sport. And, of course, I'm talking about fans finally being allowed back into sporting events. Sort of. I mean, terms and conditions apply, like. And I'm sure there will be some dudes out there screaming that women can't fill stadiums when they hear that the women's Super League match between Chelsea and West Ham on Sunday was attended by 700 out of a maximum of 2,000 fans. To be fair, as a season ticket holder at Charlton Athletic, I'm entered into the weekly ticket ballot for a place at a home game and I have been successful both times so far and both times I've not been able to attend, so you know anyway let's talk about that match briefly because it looks like it was a belter with Chelsea winning 3-2 thanks to a hat-trick by Sam Kerr who you'll remember from last year's World Cup is pretty good and it was generally considered something of a coup when Chelsea signed her afterwards that's then 12 successive home wins for the West Londoners which is a new WSL record but the table is pretty interesting because Manchester United remember them the team that's literally only existed for two years anyway they're currently top of the league Chelsea have a game in hand but yeah it's pretty exciting stuff that they've established themselves as major players so quickly there was some rugby for fans to go and watch over the weekend as well which is exactly what they did as Worcester Warriors took on Gloucester Hartbury but it wasn't enough for the home side who lost 15-7 a better day at the office for Wasps who beat Loughborough Lightning 21-10 and Harlequins who thrashed Bristol Bears 61-17 and the Quins remain top of the table with five points to spare But it's not all good news with the return of fans to sporting events. So I have to say the issues in the news this week have been relating to men's football matches, not women's. You'll probably have heard yourselves that fans at Millwall and Colchester matches this week managed to ruin their returns by booing players who took the knee at the start of the match. And of course, they were taking the knee as a gesture of solidarity with black players and fans, as was previously done by NFL player Colin Kaepernick and popularised in English football after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis earlier this year. So Millwall responded with a statement that they were dismayed and saddened by the booing, while the Millwall Supporters Club said that this was not motivated by racism, rather opposition to the political views of the Black Lives Matter organisation with which the gesture is associated. Now, I've been thinking about this quite a bit because I've seen this argument doing the rounds recently, and I would say predominantly amongst those with quite right-wing views. And I know there is a really complicated interaction between different societal factors like class, wealth, race, etc. But I've largely come to the conclusion that the people who object to the politics of the Black Lives Matter movement basically object to equal rights for black people... It's more nuanced than that, obviously, but as we have repeatedly pointed out on this podcast, rights are not like a pie. If you give someone more, it doesn't mean that everyone else is going to get less. Anyway, Millwall have announced that they will now ditch the knee-taking in response to this, and instead they will link arms, carry banners, and stick a Kick It Out logo on their shirts. Personally, I think that's the wrong call. I think we have to stop pandering to this rhetoric. Big up then, in my opinion, to Colchester Chairman Rob Cowling, who said that fans who disagreed with the gesture but could not bring themselves to stay silent should stay away because they are not welcome at our club. We could debate this for ages. Is sport a place for politics? Well, come on guys, everywhere's a place for politics. And if not, I see your BLM argument and I raise you poppies. Let's end on a high, as I do like to, with the news that the England and Wales Cricket Board has announced a further 16 female cricketers have been awarded full-time contracts, which takes the total number of women with said contracts up to 41 okay yes it's by no means a fully professional operation but it is progress and it now means that each of the eight regional teams have five full-time players props to western storm who have themselves funded a sick more of this please that's all for me this week you can catch me on twitter if you'd like to chat about any of this where i am at inspire gen and i'll be back next week with more women's sports <laughs>
0: Welcome to Rated or Dated. This week, it was Hannah's choice. Hannah, what did you have us watching?
1: This week, we watched 1990s comedy released in November in the US and this week in the UK, but I googled it, currently showing on cinemas in the UK Mm -hmm. now. I don't know if that's something to do with its 30th anniversary or I don't know if that happens every Christmas. Home Alone, released, as I said, in 1990. Written and produced by John Hughes, who was a big old name at the time, and still is. Directed by Chris Columbus, who wasn't such a big name at the time. I think this was the film that made his name. Music by John Williams, so proper pedigree there. Starring Macaulay Culkin, John Hurd, Catherine O'Hara, Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern and John Candy, among others. Took $476.7 million at the box office. And held the record for highest grossing comedy ever until 2011 when it was taken over by...
0: Anybody want to guess? Ooh,
1: 2011. Anchorman. The Hangover Part 2. Oh my God. Yeah. I couldn't get through The Hangover. I've never seen any of them. Look, we rented it from... This is how long ago it was. We rented
2: it from Blockbuster and we actually were just like, nah, fuck this. We're not going to watch
1: it. My favourite thing ever about The Hangover, and this is bearing in mind I've never seen it, is I had a lodger who had a boyfriend who I just—he was just an idiot. And once I mentioned Mike Tyson, and he said, is that the guy out of The Hangover? <laughs> <laughs> and and well, it's just yeah, one of the dumbest but... things I've ever heard. So Home Alone spawns some sequels throughout pop culture, you'll find it. Although arguably its most famous line isn't actually from Home Alone, it's from... Angels with Filthy Souls, the the film within a film in yeah. Home Alone. Keep the change, you filthy, filthy animal. plot is pretty simple and actually dispatched really quickly And what is essentially one long scene, really, that runs at the start. It's not continuous, but it might as well be, which is the family of eight-year-old Macaulay Culkin, Kevin McAllister. His family is getting ready to go away for Christmas, to go to France, to visit some other family. There's a huge amount of children in the house. And they oversleep and somehow manage to leave Kevin at home. I have seen this once and only once. And that was at the cinema when I was, I'm going to say 17, if it was I saw it at the cinema. And I took my brother and some of my cousins who would all have been about seven, eight or nine to see it at the cinema yeah, it's my life, just me dragging huge amounts of children behind me. Did, did you lose one of them? Because that would have been really good. <laughs> no, but I think everyone did was hoping I would. They loved it. I don't recall ever seeing it again. I think you watch it every year, don't you, Mickey?
0: I do watch it every year. I've had to uh, shift round my Christmas film schedule to watch Home Alone a lot earlier than I would usually watch it, which is why we put the tree up at the weekend so that I could fittingly watch a Christmas film. Because usually it's later in the day, this one or later in the in the advent i reckon i've probably seen it about 30 times if it's 30 years old
2: jen yes i've seen it many times i feel like it's the kind of film that i've seen bits of a lot because i think it's one that is sort of fairly heavily rotated in that kind of sunday late afternoon slot on channel four and channel five at this sort of time of Mm. year but i was eight when this film came out so kind of like prime were you one of the kids
1: I was made to take to the cinema to see
2: it (laughs) Jim? you lost me Hannah that's why you can't remember it yeah so I loved this film when it first came out and I don't remember having watched it the whole way through again I must have done because I remember all of it apart from like one section in the middle I was a bit like oh I can't really remember this bit
1: but was that um, when he did the shoplifting because I didn't remember that bit at all. yeah that
2: bit and when he goes over the lake
1: Yeah, I did wonder, is this the director's cut? (laughs) Why haven't I seen this before? But obviously, like I say, 30 years ago. There's loads of stuff to talk about with this, but I I don't know, I thought we might start with the question of child actors. First thing to say, obviously, he's not the centrepiece at all, but one of the best things in this, for me, was just a reminder of how completely weird and wonderful Kieran Culkin has always been. (laughs) (laughs) Strange little kid. I find with this, watching this, that everyone will always say, oh, Macaulay Culkin is really great in this. There are bits of it that, I mean, he's he's however old. I mean, he's playing an eight-year-old, so I think what is he about 10 when he made it.
0: He's 10. Can I just say he did a brilliant tweet this year. Macaulay Culkin tweeted yes. the following, hey, guys, want to feel old? I'm 40 today. <laughs>
1: and everyone yeah.
0: did the munch scream
1: face as they realised that we're we're all heading towards the end. The stuff where he's supposed to be being deliberately cute, I actually find quite irritating. And a lot of the early sort of hammy, when he first discovers he's by himself and he's running around the house waving his hand, shrieking, really gets on my nerves. But actually, the stuff where he's not visibly acting, which includes the stuff when he's in the church with Robert's Blossom, he's actually brilliant. I way prefer when it's more low-key than when it's more hyped up. I mean, when it gets to the end and it goes full on Looney Tunes, it is a ridiculous amount of fun. But actually, I way prefer low-key Macaulay Culkin in this to the, the shrieking, the face grabbing and all of that.
2: I feel like I haven't watched it for a while. And so like proper, proper belly laughs in the last bit at the end, like that, you know, the when the house is under siege. I was surprised by how how funny I found it actually I was proper like guffawing on the sofa but also I was surprised by it. how charming I thought I mean you you like you watch him and you think like he must have been such a precocious little shitbag but like how charming he is in that film I was really like surprised by how charming I found him actually
1: his brother is basically Biff Tannen, Mark too though isn't he yes, yes. yeah yeah yeah
0: Credit to Macaulay Culkin as well. I agree with you, Hannah, that the, the more stagey aspects do feel a little bit Amdram when he is absolutely hamming it up. I assume at the director's behest. But he is in nearly every single scene. That is quite a lot of hard work. And he definitely puts the graft in. And yeah, he's he's very cute and he's charming. And clearly a genius for an eight-year-old to come up with all those booby traps. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> there are a couple of other absolutely just, to me, stellar performance in this. Joe Pesci is amazing in this. Yes. <laughs> as is Stern. When the yes. scream he does when they put that spider on his face is just <laughs> it's brilliant. brilliant. <laughs> it's one of my two favourite things in Home Alone, that scream and then the little dance that John Candy does when he says polka, polka, polka. Just that little <laughs> action that he does. John Candy is kind of in this exactly the right amount because although I'd, I'd like him more, he is really extraneous to the plot. He's just there to give John Candy something fun to do. But he is brilliant in it, I thought. You are a big fan of Catherine O'Hara, Mickey, so you've probably got thoughts there, haven't you?
0: I love Catherine O'Hara. I think she's incredible and I love her in Beetlejuice. I love her in all the Christopher Guest films where she gets to sort of write her own songs and ad-lib and sort of be uh, innovative in that way. I think she's great here. She does a job as a very harassed, worried mother who has left her eight-year-old home alone and is desperate to try any which way to get home to him she's a little bit shrill but it's a bit like that Winona Ryder in Stranger Things problem in that if you are worried about a missing child I imagine you do come across as a little bit shrill but yeah I think she's cracking
1: it's interesting because obviously we've all been home alone this year a little bit and reluctant as I am to bring everything back to coronavirus it amused me that he basically did what everybody else did in lockdown when they found themselves home alone. Like, he started eating shit. He just watched endless television. Then he started doing laundry, which was entirely unnecessary, but he clearly just wanted something to do. I fended off at least two pesky burglars a week, to be honest with you. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting the question of rated or dated, I found with this, because my gut reaction would be to say, parts of it are dated, but the dated bit are the bits that make it possible. Because in twenty. 20 a storm would not wipe out your capacity to organize all the phone lines go down the alarm clocks go off which is something that wouldn't happen they can't contact anyone because nobody's got a mobile phone so it seems like the dated bit is what makes all of this possible if you try to make it now everything would have to be so convoluted about why you couldn't contact anybody and why you overslept in the first place
2: when i was watching it the one thing that really struck me, obviously it the whole thing's silly, it's not meant to be realistic, but I was like, you've got five kids, there's no fucking way any of you have overslept, like, <laughs> it's just, how many kids are in, I think there's like 10 children, 11 kids in the house. Yeah. And two, at least two of them are very, very small. There's no way any of them have overslept and missed their alarm. It just hasn't happened.
0: I'd like to tip my hat to John Hurd, who moved from Home Alone to The Sopranos to Sharknado. I what know, a career trajectory. I, his
1: little <laughs> face when I, I was like, what happened? What happened? <laughs> really, what did happen?
0: Yeah. Can we talk about the, the violence, I guess? And it is pure cartoon violence. And I think... That's why it gets away with it. But it absolutely makes
1: my... It makes my belly feel funny when
0: all of those things are happening to them. My
1: stomach was cold for about five minutes. Then falling down the stairs was horrible to yeah. watch. But then the crowbar kept falling. And the iron hitting him in the face made my teeth go on edge. Yeah. I mean, like we say, it's cartoonish and it's amped up cartoonish because like Pesci is making cartoon noises in it, isn't he? He's yeah. actually going full on... rasha fresh out, like cartoon noises when stern
0: puts his foot down on that Ah. nail exactly i'm like oh my balls feel weird and i don't even have balls
2: yeah that's the only bit that actually like the rest of it i i just laughed because it is so cartoon i couldn't really take it seriously i found it funny but the nail is still like
1: oh god I mean, you think he'd have learnt to look where he stepped because he then just steps into those Christmas decorations without looking to see where he's <laughs> stepping. And then continues to walk across them once he's already trod on one. You're like, why don't you just look down? Why I can see he's lost down? all
0: feeling in his feet by that point. Yeah. I do like the, the little exchange. Why have you taking your shoes off? Why are you dressed as a chicken? It's very lovely. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I have a question. Has anyone seen High Alone 2? Yes, yes, it's great. It's a
0: really good okay. film.
1: That's the one. Lost in New York. In. How the hell has he not been taken into care by now then, Kevin McAllister? They're middle class, mate. Upper yeah. middle right. class, I'd say. They're very rich. White middle they...
2: class Americans.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they are very rich, aren't they? That's a massive mm. house.
0: And I was like feeling a little bit tearful just at the amount of money that they've spaffed in basically not going to Paris. <laughs> just like, oh my God. Surely after their relief of kevin being safe and sound has worn off a little bit like as we hear at the end buzz is already furious as to what kevin's done to his bedroom but yeah the whole like how much money did we spend on a two-day round trip to paris
2: yeah Yeah, that's gonna hurt a lot of his films are um it's the same kind of demographic isn't it john hughes films because it's um uncle buck absolute fucking classic i love uncle buck uh i love john candy exactly i know every time i think about the fact that he's dead i'm just like why why it's not fair um at least he gave us cool runnings before he left us jen yeah good point good point another absolute banger of a film yeah it's the it's the same kind of and he basically plays the same character in all of them doesn't he but he's fucking good at it oh god i love john candy yeah, I too. think you're right with Hughes and the
0: demographic. Although this, I think Home Alone marks Uncle Buck is a slightly uh, younger demographic and Home Alone is younger than like 16 Candles and The Breakfast Club where you see yeah. them going from older teen to young adult. And here we've got Kevin kind of going from little tiny boy to teenager almost a bit early when he's
2: forced to have to survive all on his tod. It's very good. Like, you know how Paddington... I'm obsessed with Paddington, the, like particularly Paddington Two. Paddington Two is too, it's amazing. It's a great wonderful. film, genuinely and amazing. It's so good, and I think that like, you watch that and you're like, "This is how you make a family film." Like it's absolutely bang on because the kids are going to like it, but you really, really enjoy it as an adult as well. And I sort of I felt Home Alone was quite a lot like that. Watching it again, I was like, "You've really like nailed that kind of." wide appeal well, kind of thing. I, I might
1: be wrong here but I think Paddington 2 was written by Simon Farnaby in which case that's what he did for years with Horrible Histories it's very good my favourite bit in Paddington 2 and we've way, way gone off course here is the bit where, where Simon Farnaby is running trying to catch the nun the very attractive nun <laughs> which, is, which <laughs> is Hugh Grant but he's drinking a cup of tea while he's doing it it's just so fucking stupid it's glorious the, the very attractive man. The
0: glory of Paddington 2. It is the only time my brother's wife has ever seen my brother cry and they have got married and had
1: a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so, question. Rated or dated, home alone? Rated. 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 Yeah, rated. fully rated. Yeah, Yeah, I'm going to say rated because, like I say, the bit that makes it dated is the bit that actually makes it good. So, yeah, yeah. rated. Okay, what about next week? What are we watching next week?
0: Now then, I noticed that Sandra Bullock vehicle, Miss Congeniality, turns 20 this month. And I was tempted, but for my money, Drop Dead Gorgeous was always the better film along the same theme of beauty pageants. And it turned 21 this year. I fucking love Drop Dead Gorgeous. So even though we've missed the actual month of its birthday, which was June, we're going to watch it anyway. I I had a little line that says Hannah in case you need convincing it's got Alice and Janney in it but you're already
2: on board. Does it feature the song from Republica by the same name? I I don't know. I don't
0: think it does. I don't think it but that is a oh, banging tune. Good pick Mick. Ah, thanks.
4: Standard issue
3: for all women.